save Christ and the flock uh, that you have set apart, Lord. We pray that judgment would begin in the household of the Lord. Lord, that you would awaken us from apathy or lethargy or, Lord, just um, uh, lukewarmness. We ask that you'd cleanse and forgive us of all of our sins. Lord, we also ask that you would open the eyes of those that are still in darkness. Lord, we pray for many prodigals, even represented in this church, that are afar off. Lord, they've heard the gospel, but they're not ready for eternity. They're on the broad road to destruction. We pray you'd call them back to the foot of the cross. We pray, Lord, those in our nation, whether they be in high positions of office or no name at all, but Lord, if they're still lost and without Christ, you would open their eyes. We pray for a, a great awakening in this country. Lord, we pray for an outpouring of repentance and, Lord, the confessions of sin and, Lord, the chains of sin would be broken. And, Lord, people that are in addictions and people that are abusing other people or violence or murder or all types of idolatry and pride, Lord, that all of these things would be repented of and there would be seasons of refreshing, Lord. We pray, Lord, that uh, not only here but around the world, we pray in the nation of Iceland that they would see many come to know you as Lord and Savior and that the name of Jesus will be lifted up. We pray for the, the barracks as they fly to uh, Bolivia later this week. We pray that your, your anointing power would be upon them. Use uh, Linda and Andy and Jen in a mighty way, Lord. We pray that people would be saved and that people would be rescued uh, from sin and bondage. Uh, like we pray, uh, Lord, that not just in those countries but around the world. We pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters, wherever they may be, Lord, that you would deliver them, that you'd rescue them, that you'd heal them, you'd reunite them with family. We ask all these things in the mighty and holy name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for praying with us. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We'll pick up with where we left off two weeks ago. So last week, hope out loud, but now we're back in the book of Acts, picking up with exactly where we left off. We finished through verse 11, so we'll pick it up in verse 12. I'll just read verses 12 13 and 14, and then we'll read the rest of the chapter a little bit later. Bible's open, Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered and went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simeon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, not Judas Iscariot, different Judas, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Let's pray again. Father, we come before you, we open your word now your word which is forever settled in heaven, your word which is powerful, your word which has the power to open eyes. It's quick and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, this is a living word. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the manna that you desire us to have this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would have soft, uh, pliable hearts and open ears. And Lord, we would not be hearers of the word, but doers of your word. I pray for your help and your strength and your anointing. I could never preach your word without your help. And Lord, may all of us grow in our walk with you. And if anyone doesn't know you today, they would come to know you as their Lord, as their Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus had told 
the disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem. And that in just a few days, they would be endued with power from on high as the Holy Spirit would come upon them, giving them the power that they would need and we need to be his witnesses wherever they went. And after momentarily staring up into heaven, you remember when Jesus ascended back up into heaven from the Mount of Olives, they just stared there, probably their mouths wide open, jaws on the ground, and who can blame them? You've never seen a person just rise up into heaven. Hollywood does it all the time, but, but that's fake stuff. This was re the real thing Jesus is sending back to the Father. And they had been reminded by two angels to go and do what Jesus had told them to do, and they do that. They return to Jerusalem, and they begin to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, and they begin what amounts to a 10-day period of praying and encouraging one another and moving forward with the mission they've been given and replacing Judas Iscariot as they gather in anticipation for what God will send now that Jesus has returned to heaven. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, What Began with Prayer, and oh, how the Lord loves and wants to teach us the simple statement, these words, let's pray. We should be saying it a lot, let's pray. It's the starting point to what God desires to do in our lives and in our circumstances. And here in Acts chapter 1, prayer is the very starting point of empowering the church, the church age itself. We are all beneficiaries of learning what the early church learned as they gathered to pray. That's why when we gather here, we don't want to only sing. We do want to sing. We don't want to only open the Word. We absolutely, the Word is central. We also want to pray. We spend time, we don't get to spend the volume of time in prayer, but our prayers are sincere. I hope that yours are sincere. Everything I'm praying here, Lord, I mean these words. And it's my prayer that we would become, as a church family, as the body of Christ at Calvary Chapel Richmond, that we would become increasingly dependent on prayer as the early church was, and that we would see the Lord move in a more powerful and purifying way. How many think you could be more pure than you are today? Of course you could. Even if you're saying you know God can purify you more, he has no limits in what he can do in us. And as we seek him in intercession, we want to learn uh, from what the early church learned here. So turn back to Acts chapter 1, verse 12 here. It says in verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. The disciples, they make their way from the Mount of Olives. So if you're standing in Jerusalem, you're looking east to the Mount of Olives. It's right there in front of you. If you go to Israel with us in, in February, and we only have a we had like five ad, five drop. There's like a couple seats left. And sign up ASAP because i got to get these numbers to um, the tour company this coming week. But if you're standing in Jerusalem and you're standing there in the city, like you're standing on the Temple Mount, you're looking straight at the Mount of Olives to the east. And that was a Sabbath day's journey from the Mount of Olives back into where the upper room where they were staying, uh, or about... 2,000 cubits, and if you've stopped using cubits as your uh, directional uh, measurements, uh, that's about a half-mile walk. 
this was the allowable distance under the law's command in Exodus 16.29 where Moses said each man remain in his place. And that meant within the camp, within the confines of the encampment on the Sabbath day. The measurement was derived from the farthest point. So you guys have seen the pictures where you have the tabernacle in the center and you have the tribes that surround and they're in their formations around the tabernacle. So the farthest point was about a half mile. So if you were at the farthest point of the camp, you had that allowable walk to the tabernacle on the Sabbath for worship. Now Luke does not say that this was a Sabbath day. He said it was a Sabbath day's journey because everyone would have understood, at least the uh, readers would have understood about a half mile or the distance from Olive, Mount of Olives into the center of the city. Now, they're also under grace now. So uh, if it was a Sabbath, they could walk farther than that now, just like you didn't have to be circumcised to be saved and you could eat certain foods now. The ceremonial laws were no longer required. Now, the other laws, like thou shalt not kill, still required. Thou shalt not commit adultery, still required. But the ceremonial ones... They weren't under because they're now they're under the age of grace. Uh, a couple other important observations of the Mount of Olives because it says they come from Olivet, and we know that it was important uh, even in the last um, a few days here. Forty-some days earlier, Jesus had done what? He had given the Olivet Discourse where he foretold the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and he did all that from the Mount of Olives when he told about the end times, the tribulation, what, it, what would be the 70th week of Daniel. He told about all those things, the impact on Israel, the impact on the world, nation rising against nation. He did all that on the Mount of Olives the week of that Passover week that he was crucified. Now, moments before they get back to the upper room, he had just ascended back into heaven on that same Mount of Olives. And the place of his ascension, where Jesus told about the end times, and then 40-some days later, he ascends back into heaven from the Mount of Olives, is also going to be the very place. Some of you know this, some of you may not know this, but the Mount of Olives is also going to be the place where he will stand and put his feet at the end of the seven-year tribulation. That same Mount of Olives, God will keep coming back to that place. And at the end of the seven-year tribulation, that will begin the 1,000-year reign of Christ. But when he steps foot on the Mount of Olives, and if my thing is, act, this is acting up again, did it advance me forward? So uh, for whatever reason, this thing is possessed at the moment. Uh, Zechariah 14.4, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. From east to west, making a very large valley, half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of the mountain towards the south because the, the Mount of Olives is on a north-south line. And so if you split it in the center, if you're, if you're standing on the Temple Mount looking at the Mount of Olives, it would split in two this way. Half would go to the south, half would go to the north, and Jesus will stand there. Uh, I think, Jack, you said about crushing Mount, uh, Mount Everest, uh, he's not going to do that, but he is going to stand on Mount of Olives and he's going to move it and it's going to go in two directions. And of course, as the, uh, as the mountain moves, Jesus can still stand on air. So uh, he, uh, it can go like that and he can still stand, he already ascended right from that mountain. So if it moves east to west, he can still stand right where he's at and the valley would be underneath him. Pretty amazing, isn't it? 
but the Mount of Olives is very central to what God is going to do there in the city of Zion. And the Mount of Olives is also, uh, you may or may not know, it's the most important burial site in the Jewish world. It's believed, and this is just a, um, it's just kind of a uh, long-standing uh, belief, and it's written in some of the rabbinical writings. They, have, they believe that those that are buried, and if you go to Jerusalem and you look at the Mount of Olives, you see all those tombs. You ever seen the pictures? There's just tombs as far as you can see on the mountain. There's, not, there's no grass there now because there's tombs everywhere. There's limestone tombs. They believe that those that are buried there will rise first when their Messiah comes. Now, the Messiah's already come, and the reality is you will not rise faster from the Mount of Olives. Paul said those who are dead in Christ will rise faster first. So that doesn't mean if you're, it doesn't matter if you died in the Titanic or in the Twin Towers or you're buried in Chesterfield County or on the Mount of Olives, but nevertheless they believe that. They also believe that their Messiah uh, and of course their Messiah has already come and he will come again that's Jesus. They believe that their Messiah will come and defend Israel from the Mount of Olives that will be where he'll set up his defense and they believe that when he defends Israel he will then enter through the city and the beautiful gate, the east gate, and all of that he will do, but they've just missed the right Messiah. Amen? Uh, so uh, he will defend Israel, and he will come down, just like he did on the day triumphant entry, he'll come down the Mount of Olives and into the temple, into the city, and all of that he will do, but... Um, but not until he has turned the hearts of Israel back to himself. And that will take place in the seven-year tribulation, then the, uh, the millennium reign will start after that. But on the day that Jesus ascended, he had told his disciples that the future state of Israel, remember that they were like, Lord, when will you restore the kingdom of Israel? That was very central to their mind. They thought that their kind of uh, if Jesus had risen from the dead, that this was going to usher in Israel uh, like the days of Solomon and, and David. It would usher right back in. And especially if God was going to send this special work of the pouring out of power, they, 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 were, that was, they were thinking that's going to be right around the corner. But Jesus said, no, I don't want you to focus on uh, what I'm going to do with Israel. The Father, those, those things are in his hands, not for you to focus on. The focus at this time, we talked about this two weeks ago, the focus at this time was to wait for and receive the immersion, the drenching, the baptism, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. As the age of grace was now going to go forward, and the work of the gospel, and reaching the ends of the world with the mission of the gospel, that was to be their focus. But first they had to wait, because even though he had given them this command to go out and you'll receive power when you uh, to go to Jerusalem and Samaria and the uttermost, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, they first were told to go and wait. And so they do. In verse 13, they return to the city, and then when they had entered, they went up into the upper room. I'm not going to reread all the names um, of the disciples there, but they enter back into the city. They go into the upper room. This may have been the very same place where they had partaken of the Passover, which we call the Last Supper. Today uh, we'll take the elements we, which we call the Lord's Supper, and all is from that very same night in the upper room. And this may have been the same upper room. We don't know if it's the same upper room, but it's possible. The 11 remaining disciples are there. Now Judas has died. Uh, Peter's going to address that in just a few minutes here. We'll read the other portions of the text. 
Uh, but the other 11 disciples, all, the, all 11 are there. Uh, plus, it says in verse 14, uh, these all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So the women, this more than likely includes uh, the women that were at the tomb, uh, women such as Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Salome, uh, as well as Mary, the wife of Clopas, the, the two sisters, Mary and Martha, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who Luke specifically uh, names here. And this is also perhaps some of the disciples' wives, Peter's wife, some of the other apostles we believe were married as well. So it could have been their wives also inclusive of uh, Luke's description there of the women. Luke also mentions the brothers of Jesus. Now this is noteworthy, um, which tells us that after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' brothers, one of his brothers you know by name, whether you, well, his earthly brother, he had a brother, he had more than one, but um, one of his brothers is James, the book of James. It's his half-brother. And James at, uh, earlier was not a believer in Jesus. None of his siblings believed in Jesus. Uh, but after the resurrection, they all came to believe that Jesus was their Messiah. Mary, their mother, already believed Jesus was the Messiah. Remember at the wedding in Cana, she said, whatever he says, do it. Right, right. Uh, she already believed in him as her Lord and Savior, even though she had given birth to him in Bethlehem. But the brothers did not believe for, for most of his life until the resurrection. They did not believe that Jesus was God. They did not believe he was divine. They didn't believe he was uh, the incarnate Savior. And uh, about eight months earlier, we know this because John records it in John chapter 7, verse 5, his brothers were unbelievers. Uh, John 7, 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. They, they had a hard time. They struggled as kids. They're like, um, he's running around the house. They're running around the house. Now, they should have noticed that he never lied. That every time something went wrong and they lied, they should have noticed he actually told the truth. We, I thought we were all in on this together. He told the truth again and again and again, and they should have noticed he never said anything that he shouldn't say to his parents. He never talked back. They should have noticed, but even with all that, they just could not believe. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament, his brothers could not believe who he said he was, and so it was kind of a foreshadow. But Jesus been was the Messiah and perfect, and they should have noticed that he never sinned, he never made a mistake. Uh, but even later, his brothers were more than aware of the miracles that he had done. They had either heard of them or seen them themselves. But you know what convinced them? When they saw their half-brother murdered on a cross, and every drop of blood was out of him, and beaten beyond recognition, and three days later, he strolls out of the grave. They were like, we were wrong. You really are the Messiah. That's what convinced them. They were there after this, because eight months earlier, they did not even believe in Jesus, but Jesus walks out of the grave. They're like, you were telling the truth the whole time. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And so they believed in him after the resurrection. It was the bodily, bodily resurrection of Jesus that convinced him, convinced them that he was the Christ, and now they believed in him. Uh, back to verse 14, it says, um, the, Mary and the mother uh, and the brothers. So the brothers, you know, they go from thinking, but it says they were all, uh, back in verse 14, these all continued with one 
accord. The brothers of Jesus, they go from thinking all the disciples are out of their minds to now they're of the same mind. I mentioned Javon earlier. Um, you know, I remember him unsaved. And I can look around. I remember several of you in the room. I can see your faces. I won't mention you. But I remember several people unsaved. And I know how people think. I know how I thought before I was saved. I've said it many times. Because I was in college in Miami and Fort Lauderdale, and there was no place less that I'd want to be on a Sunday morning than in a church service. Like, if the sun was shining and the, the waves were working and, and the beach looked good, that's where I wanted. I did not want to be sitting in a church service. And then you get saved, and, I've, and I remember this with Javon, like, you know, I remember him nodding off and arms folded, really angry look at times before he fell asleep and things like that, and then get saved, like, Man, I read 10 chapters of the Bible last night. The same person. And that's the brothers of Jesus. They went from not believing in Jesus to now they're with one accord. Everything that the apostles had been probably even trying to convince the brothers, everything they went back to Galilee, the other guys who aren't Jesus's like earthly brothers, you ever have people try and witness to your family that you can't get through to? So they're trying to tell the brothers of Jesus your brother really is the Savior. And they're like, no, he's not. We've eaten at the same dinner table with him for years. Yes, he is. We've seen him feed 5,000. No, he's not. And back and forth. But now they're of the same mindset. And here they are gathered together. And and as soon as the resurrection takes place, they want to jump right in with the apostles. And James becomes one of the pastors right there with Peter. James, the half-brother of Jesus, will become a mighty man of God. And like I said, write the book of James. Um... But they're all there, and oh, how the Lord loves his children to be of one mind and one accord. He wants us in this church to be of one in Jesus, not a bunch of individual lone rangers doing whatever we want to do. God then brings us in to a unity of the Spirit. Now, of course, that's going to be accentuated by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. But we can only be of one mind and one accord, how? If we're all following Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, there'll be fractures, there'll be issues, there'll be divisions, but they're all in unity. And they continually, from the time they arrived back in Jerusalem, because it says they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, they continually now devote themselves to prayer. And by the way, when you see prayer and supplication... Supplication is an earnest pleading with God. You ever, had, you ever had these prayers where you've just pleaded with God, Lord, please give me victory over this in my life. Or, Lord, please save this person. Lord, I've been praying for them years. I beg of you to save them, to open their eyes. Supplication is an earnest pleading with God, a yearning. Prayer can be a lot of different things. It can, it can, it's inclusive of that because prayer is a larger umbrella. But prayer can also be praise. It can also be just praising the name of God and, and all, just talking to God and thankfulness. All that's under the umbrella of prayer. And even supplication, again, is under the umbrella of prayer. But supplication is that kind of yearning and crying out in prayer. So when you see the two together, it shows you there's times of intense where Peter says... Uh, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious in your prayers. And so supplication is a very serious nature in praying. But they all are, are there, and they begin to devote themselves to prayer. And let me also say for the brothers, because their brothers are brand new believers, there is no better place for a brand new believer than a prayer meeting. Amen. 
You got to say, well, I, you know, I got saved, so I'll start 10 prayer meetings after about five years, right? No, you need to get right there. Uh, and they were. The brothers were right there, and they jumped right into this prayer meeting. And, and, you know, Mary and her sons are now praying up to Jesus, who grew up in their same house, and they're praying up to the mediator of their faith. And amazing. Uh, but now they know Jesus as their Savior, as their high priest, as their mediator between God and man. Now when Jesus had told them, when he told them to wait for the promise of the Father, you'll note that he did not specifically tell them to pray. He said, go and wait for me. Did you notice that from last uh, two weeks ago? He said, go and wait for the promise of the Father. He did not specifically say to pray. Yet they knew they had to pray. Even without him saying it, they had become good students. They had learned, if he said go wait, that most assuredly means prayer is part of the equation. Why did they know that? They had observed in Jesus that everything Jesus did, he did through prayer. Prayer was how Jesus prepared. And before I take that point a little further... Um, it's interesting about Jesus. You know he goes away for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness to fast and pray. I find this fascinating. I was talking to my wife about some of my observations of Jesus. Um, Jesus, in, in many senses that we can understand and our limited understanding, Jesus did not need to pray. He is God, right? right, right. Like, he does not need, he's him, God the Father, and the Spirit are one at all times. It's not like Jesus said, if I don't pray, I can't get near. No, he is God. Everything he speaks becomes scripture, and yet he would quote scripture. So he doesn't need to pray. So why does he go pray? It was all showing us how desperately we needed. He, he didn't need to be baptized, and he was baptized. All these different things. So Jesus had set a model for them that he had prayed. It was how he prepared. He prepared for prayer. Now, obviously, he was sanctifying himself. When he would go and pray for those 40 days and 40 nights, he was setting himself completely apart. No other distraction, just to be with the Father and to come out of that 40 days just anointed for the ministry. But he, everything he did to prepare for his ministry, he, prepared, he prayed and even fasted how he would choose the 12, how he would finish the, on the, on the mission on the cross. When he goes in the Garden of Gethsemane, what is he doing? He's praying, even dripping uh, drops of blood as he prayed. Preparation without prayer is not preparation. Preparation without prayer is not preparation. That's presumption. I'll just go do it. And God will bless it. No, you need to pray, then go. Pray, then speak. Pray, then send that email. Pray, then have that conversation. Pray, then witness. Amen. Preparation without prayer is not preparation. That's just presumption. Jesus had taught them to pray. In fact, they had asked him in Luke 11, 1, Lord, teach us to pray. I've been saved for going on 28 years, and I still pray, Lord, teach me to pray. I'm still praying, Lord, teach me how to pray. Teach me how to go deeper in my prayer life. Because although Jesus you know, did not in one sense need to pray, I know he needed to pray in the sense that God it was part of the will of the Father, but we are learning to pray. Jesus already was that intimate with the Father. We're learning to have that kind of depth of walk. Now, when he told them to watch and wait in the garden, you remember when he told them to watch and wait in the garden, he rebuked them because they could not pray or wait with him for one hour. Right, right, right. I hope you will come out in June. We pray for one hour 
we don't even pray for an hour after worship and everything. It ends up being about 35, 40 minutes. But we should be able to grow to the point where we can say, Lord, I will set aside this time and pray and spend that time with you. Now, they, were, uh, they weren't even asked to pray. In this case, Jesus said, go and wait. And they became willing to pray, not just for an hour, but for days. Not 10 consecutive days. They did do other things. They went home and slept. We believe that they ate during that time. We believe they other did, I, I believe they did other things in this setting because Peter's going to stand up and give a mini message. And just a, we'll read that in just a few minutes here. But they did other things too. I believe they worshiped in psalm. They probably read the psalms. They probably sang the psalms. They talked about the ministry of Jesus. They probably reminisced on all the things they had seen in the miracles of Jesus. They taught from the scriptures. But then they would go back to prayer. Prayer was to kind of, they do these things kind of like even this morning. We pray, I think you know, Scott prayed, and then Jackson prayed, and then I prayed, and we go back and we keep coming back to prayer. And so they would do that over the course of those 10 days, of course, it would be much longer periods of prayer because there was no other distractions. But the disciples learned that if, uh, if they had witnessed in the life of Jesus that all of his miracles, everything was, pr- uh, was led by prayer, and everything that they had learned from Jesus, it's not like that, well, we have absorbed enough from Jesus that we don't need to pray anymore. No, it underscored that they would need a lifetime of prayer because if Jesus was praying that way, they also learned that they had to pray. And so if we're going to have this waiting time, we've got to dedicate it and surrender this time to prayer. The disciples learned that, that prayer is always the work that precedes power. Prayer first, power second. Prayer, then power. We know that Jesus said it, this 10 days, you're going to wait in that prayer, and then the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out. As a group of transformed souls, so here they are all gathered together there in the upper room. Uh, they're a group of transformed souls. The brothers are the newest transformed souls, but the disciples have been walking with Jesus for three years. Yet, as much as they've been transformed, as much as they have grown, they are incapable without Jesus' help. Amen? John chapter 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So they take the time. In fact, they devote the time and give it to prayer. This is a lost thing in the body of Christ today. I'm not going to say completely lost, but I mean it is a dwindling thing. Not only is church attendance in America dwindling, not only is people that are actually on fire for Christ dwindling, but the number of people that will say, I will devote specific time to prayer. I'm as happy as anybody else that I can pray on I-95. Sometimes I must pray on I-95. Sometimes I feel highly compelled to never get on it again unless I pray, right? But, But even though you can pray anywhere, Jesus said to go and shut your door behind you, and pray to your Heavenly Father. In other words, he was saying, just like he did in the 40-day wilderness, he's not telling you to do a 40-day in the wilderness, but you can go spend 15 minutes in prayer. You have to devote time to it, not just say, well, uh, as long as I got nothing else to do, I could toss up a prayer. It's good that we can pray without ceasing to pray everywhere, but he also is commanding us and telling us to make time for prayer. And so they did. They make this time, they devote this time to prayer Um, Not just talking about praying, but actually praying. Not just talking, but talking to the Father by prayer. A.W. Tozer said, uh, the key to prayer is simply praying. 
You're going to have to do it. You're going to have to set the alarm clock. You're going to have to say, Lord, I'm going to start with five minutes of specific, not because I was stuck in traffic, not because I had nothing else better to do, but I'm going to start with five minutes to go and pray for five minutes and see what God will do. Small steps of obedience, he will turn into much more fruit in our lives. And then they continue and gather to pray for what uh, becomes 10 full days. How do we know it was 10 days? Well, Jesus, from the time he rose from the dead, he stayed on the earth for 40 days. At the end of the 40 days, he ascended up to heaven. Pentecost comes 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits there. So if you take that, he goes up after 40, and you get Pentecost to the 50th day, there's your 10 days. They didn't know the exact time frame, but they ended up, because they didn't know that the Spirit was going to fall on Pentecost like we now know, uh, but they didn't know that. But they are convinced that prayer will change them and prayer is going to prepare them so they just begin to pray and again fellowship and study and read and sing and all these things, but back to prayer. D.L. Moody said, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. I, I quoted in my prayer that you know we kneel before our maker, which is why we, we get on our knees and pray. And I know that's a lost thing as well, but we get on our knees. It's a humility. It's just humbling ourselves before the Lord and saying, Lord, we desperately need your help. And if there's going to be a great movement in our country, it's not going to be with 10% of the church showing up at a prayer meeting. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Matter of fact, no one in the body of Christ should whine or complain about the country going off the rails if you won't even gather to pray. Nobody should complain about that. If you're not part of praying, uh, then really you should be totally fine with what anything that happens. If it all goes crazy and none of us are gathering to pray, but if we are gathering to pray, we can see the work of the Spirit. We can see God move. And so every great movement, D.L. Moody's right. And I mentioned last week, uh, the young girl, he believed a young girl in England who prayed him across the Atlantic. And I believe uh, that's exactly true when they saw each other. But looking at this last section of uh, chapter 1 this morning, let's read it together, these last uh, remaining verses, starting in verse 15. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether the number of names was about 120. And said, men and brethren, the scripture, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. You don't want to purchase anything in life with the wages of iniquity. We have a lot of that in our country. And falling, like, you know, if you own pornography and drug dealing and all that, that's our wages of iniquity. And falling head first, he burst open into the middle and all of his entrails gushed out. It's a wonderful passage this morning, isn't it? <laughs> and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that that field is called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another office not another take his office therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection and they proposed two Joseph called Barsabbas Whose, name, whose surname was Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you, O Lord, 
You who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and a lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So this, uh, this last section here, looking at this last section, uh, several thoughts and observations about what transpires. So this is all part of this 10-day period. Peter stands up here. Uh, but what, um, just some thoughts about this, starting in verse 15. Uh, from the Jesus' ascension to, the, uh, to Pentecost itself, you get this 10-day period, and after some time in prayer, Peter takes the stage, if you will, and stands up, or the pulpit, in verse 15. Uh, I love just these words. Peter stood up. We need men and women to stand up for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Peter stood up. We need some men of God in this country to stand up. Amen? We need somebody to stand up and actually proclaim the word of God. And Peter stood up. Now, Peter had had a really bad time, like 40 days, 40 some days earlier, right? He had failed miserably on the night of Jesus' betrayal. He had denied Jesus three times, but you guys know Jesus restored him there in the end of the book of John. Jesus says, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, gives him, basically puts the mantle back on him and says, you're still called. You failed, but it wasn't a catastrophic failure because I prayed your faith wouldn't fail. If you failed in this room, you're still here. God's like, I'm going to put the mantle back on you. And Peter, rather than kind of feeling sorry for himself and self-pity, he stands and retakes what he was supposed to be doing. And he, he's the first one to speak. Uh, Peter was always willing to be the first one to speak, but here he's doing it in a measured way. Uh, this, is the first, um, uh, this is the first time that we see uh, you know, Peter, since Jesus has given him that assurance that I've still called you, and he stands up here right out of the gate, and he begins to give a bit, a bit of a mini message. But when Peter stands, it's really coming out of this prayer meeting that he stands up because they've all been bathed in prayer. Peter's been praying. Nobody's been kind of taking the lead as far as speaking, but everybody's been in this time of prayer. And a church that is praying, this is something important for us to know, a church that is a praying church, we can become far more of a praying church than we are, but a church that is a praying church will see those who are called fulfilling their calling. Amen? If a church is a praying church, those that are called will see them fulfill their calling. And what began with the disciples and the women and Jesus and the mother and brothers, there's now 120 gathered here. We can see that it says here, altogether the number of the names is about 120. Um, I believe it says, in those days, so we know that it wasn't the very first day that they met, but in those days, so somewhere in those 10 days, Peter stands up and begins to give this mini-message and these perspectives uh, on what's taken place. Uh, but somewhere in there, it's just my personal belief that it probably didn't start out. This, when they first got back from Jesus ascending with their jaws were up, and they get in there and they start praying, it's probably a much smaller group. But within a couple of days, word gets out probably to the other disciples that are in Jerusalem, hey, we're having a prayer meeting. Anyone that's really saved is invited. If you love Jesus, come on and join the prayer meeting. It's going to be a decent-sized room to fit 120 people. We see 175 in here. Uh, they would have been okay with tighter quarters if you've been to other parts of the world. You know, rooms are smaller. Nevertheless, they all get in there and they begin uh, to pray. 
So you've got 120 in there now. And Peter, he had been, uh, as I mentioned, restored and exhorted by Jesus to feed and tend the flock. And we see Peter now stepping into this role that Jesus has called him to. As disciples, they had prayed and they had continued in prayer without the specific instructions to do so. They just knew from the life and model of Jesus. But now the Spirit, remember Jesus breathed on them the Spirit, and they'd already received the indwelling of the Spirit. They've not received the baptism of the Spirit, but they have received the indwelling of the Spirit. And the Spirit reminded them of the example of Jesus to pray. And similarly, Jesus, if you have the Holy Spirit, and He will remind you of other things. He'll help you see other things too. And Jesus always, if you notice in His ministry, He always saw needs, didn't He? He always saw needs that other people didn't see. Uh, there's no reason for him to go to Samaria. Or that he would see a person no one else was paying attention to. He would always see needs. And we now see Peter filling that. He sees a need. He sees this vacant office. Eleven seats. One seat is empty. And Peter sees this has to be addressed. And Peter, again, without any instructions, sees this need to fill the office that Judas had left vacated when he betrayed Jesus in his subsequent suicide, uh, which it says, you know, he, hung, he hangs himself, and then later, when the rope is cut or whatever takes place, when he hits the rocks, well, you read the verse. But anyway, um, but Peter sees that this office needs to be filled. Initiative is doing that which needs to be done without being told. So he's being a servant leader saying, Lord, you know, we've prayed, and in prayer, he probably sees this need come to him in prayer. What Peter has learned, he's now applying. And if we learn things and don't apply it, have we really learned it, right? Uh, because it, it's really kind of worthless to know things but not do things. He sees this vacant office, and, with, and there's obviously a pause in the prayer meeting here. No doubt there's been the other things that I mentioned probably as well. But Peter, in this pause in the prayer meeting, he stands and he addresses the gap to be filled. Question for all of us, do you see gaps? in the body of Christ, in the church, in ministry. Do you care about the gaps? Do you pray about the gaps? Are you willing to fill those gaps? Uh, all those things, Peter cared, saw, prayed, all of them. Are you praying over those things? Peter clearly cares, and he, and he stands, and he gives a brief but important teaching and an overview and a scriptural perspective of what's taken place and what they now need to do, because he talks about the fact that you know Jesus had... Uh, named them, and here they had, uh, they had the 12, and now they have this one open spot. But he goes on to say in verse 20, um, he goes on to say in verse 20, it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live it, let another take his office. Uh, this is the first time in the New Testament that Peter quotes from the Scriptures. Every other time that we see Peter speak, he's saying something He's blurting something out, he's asking something, he's making a statement. But here, isn't it great that as soon as he fills his office, he preaches the Word? As soon as he takes his office, he preaches the Scriptures. And not only does he get up, and this is the first time we see him quote the Scriptures in the New Testament, but the Spirit gives him immediate insight into what's transpired. I mean, how would Peter know that this psalm fit this moment? I mean, you could have read that verse a thousand times and not said, I think this verse applies to today. Let no one, let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it. And the Holy Spirit gave him that instantaneously. Let another take his office. He recognized by the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, that this is 
none other than speaking to this office to be filled. Obviously it had additional meaning back there in the time of David. But uh, Peter senses a stewardship and a responsibility to address this office and everyone there agrees. They all agree, yes, there's a uniform member there of one of mine and one accord. They all agree, yes, this office needs to be filled, needs to be filled with a godly man that is equivalent to the other 11 apostles. And then you get to verses 21 and 22. Therefore, uh, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning at the baptism of John from the, and uh, to the day he was taken out from us. So here's the requirement. Whatever disciple in that room of 120, there could only be a handful that had actually seen Jesus baptized and seen his ascension and knew he was raised from the dead. So they had to fit that whole time frame. And that 120, not everybody in that room fit that. Some of them had just gotten saved, but they had to be there for the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan River, and they had to be there when he ascended up into heaven, and they had to be part of his ministry going in and out among them all during that time. So in other words, the apostles were ones that could be sent eyewitnesses to the whole ministry of Jesus. That was, that was important to the apostles. Then Jesus would give them special uh, power and miracle power and all that stuff would come later. But this had to be a disciple that had been there, a close follower, a mature man of God, an eyewitness of the miracles and the baptism and resurrection. And so they come up with two. They propose uh, Justice and Matthias. They choose two men whose faithfulness had been evident. Everybody there would have been in agreement. Yep, these two guys. Um, if you've been walking with the Lord long enough and, and we put like 50 guys up, you know, you would be able to know, all right, that guy's faithful. That guy, I don't, I don't, I don't think I've ever even seen him before, so I'm not sure. You know, but that person really faithful, you know, you would know. And so they kind of knew, all right, these two guys both were faithful. And by the way, when you've been in constant prayer, you're going to make really wise spirit-led decisions. Amen. When you spend a lot of time in prayer, you're going to make good decisions. Uh, but after all this time in prayer, they pray again in verse 24. They have these two, and then they pray, Lord, you know which of these two. You know, you know the hearts of all. After time of prayer, they still pray again. All this time in prayer, and they pray again for God to choose between these two. Um, you ever have a hard time choosing between two things? You pray and pray and pray and can't get an answer? Lord, we'll come back to that thought. But when you're servants of the Lord, the, the two men that are chosen, Justice and Matthias, I don't think they cared which one got chosen because if you're a humble servant of the Lord, you don't really care what role God has for you. You just want to be in the right role. Amen? Amen. Like I, I truly would gladly, I've said this before, I now accept that God's called me to be a pastor. I, I fully embrace it with a joy. But if I didn't, I mean, I don't care about the title at all. Like, I, I would gladly give it to 10 other people. Say, you, you want it? Here, fine, take it. Uh, if you think it's so fun, go for it. You know. Uh, but, um, but at the same time, if you don't care about titles, you don't care about roles, I don't think any, any of the apostles cared about that. And good thing they didn't because they were all going to die a martyr's death with the exception of John. And they tried to kill him by boiling him oil, but it didn't work. So whoever is going to fill this position, it's a death sentence. So it's not like, uh, hey, I get to be one of the apostles, you know, 2012. I don't think they really care which one it is, but they do want to get it right. I think the two men want the right. I don't think they care who it is. Um, and then it says uh, briefly here, Judas, by transgression, that he might go to his own place. I just wanted to 
you know, you probably heard a lot of different teachings about that. Does Judas come back in some other way? Does, does he go to his own special little hell or something like that? What does that mean? Uh, really, I believe it means simply this. If you die without Christ, hell is a very dark, isolated place. Everyone goes to their own place in that sense. You are forever with your own thoughts and regrets for all eternity. Your own place. Uh, that's my perspective of that verse. There's other perspectives, but uh, I don't have time to ch address other people's perspectives. That's mine. Uh, verse 26, And they cast their lots, and Lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. They pray, and then they, they let's draw names out of a hat. After all that prayer, they prayed again, let's draw names out of a hat. This is what we did in, uh, at kids' parties when I was a kid. You know, let's, let's draw names out of a hat. You won the prize, you know, that kind of thing. They, whether it's drawing straws or drawing names out of a hat, same kind of thing. But here's the thing. They don't in any way want to make the decision. They want God to direct it. Amen. They don't want to name it. They don't want to get it wrong. Maybe they thought, because Peter had already referenced the Old Testament. Of course, the only, the only thing scripturally written at that time was Genesis to Malachi. All they had was the Tanakh, the Old Testament at the time. But there is a verse in Proverbs that they may have thought of, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So they may have very thought, they, these men were talking about the scriptures, they were thinking about, they may have very well thought about this passage here and say, hey, there's a passage here about casting the lot. We can't, even after prayer, there's no visible light coming down on either Justice or Matthias. They both look equally honorable. We can't tell which one. How about we cast lots and see if God will make that decision on our behalf. Here's the really cool thing. There's, um, you guys know that later God calls the Apostle Paul, and he becomes the Apostle Paul. And there's debate, says they, so does Paul become the 12th Apostle, or is Matthias the 12th Apostle? Because these guys are all gathered, the 11, so which one is it? We don't really know for sure. I personally believe it's going to be Paul, and all of them are going to sit on 12 thrones. I believe Matthias will have a very special role because I believe that this, none of this was accidental. Amen. He does have a definitive role, and he probably died a martyr's death. And he will be, there are the 12 apostles, and then there are other apostles that are not the 12, but they are apostles. And so I believe he has a very special role, but we really won't know for sure. But Paul said he was born, born out of time, which seems to be that he's placed back in time, if you will, by the Lord. Here's the cool thing. When you really, I want to distill it down for something that may be relative to our lives. When you're praying about something, if you really care about God's will and you don't really want your, you ever seen people that they will find a verse to back up what they want to do? So they're not really praying for God's like, whatever I pray, I will find the verse that matches what I want to do. But if you really are praying the Lord's will, say, Lord, do you want me to stay here or go there? Do you want me to do this job or this? I remember, my wife remembers when I, uh, I had two job offers at the same time in Charlotte, and I really did not know which one to take. I truly didn't. I had to say, Lord, pr which one's going to give me more time with you? That was the way I prayed it. Which one's going to give me more time to serve Jesus? And that made it clear. But sometimes it's still not clear. And then I believe God does this. He's like, just pick one. If you pick wrong, I'll fix you anyway. <laughs> that's, that's the advice I give people over the years. I, if it comes down to everything's equal and you can't tell if it's a vanilla or chocolate, pick the one you like. At that point, they could pick Matthias, and it was still going to be fine, because God would say, great choice, I've chosen Paul, good job, nice for trying, guys, you know, 
Because they did the right thing. It was, all, it, was, it was all with the right spirit to do the Lord's will. And even if it ends up being Paul, Matthias still fits nicely in God's plan. I hope that makes sense. That you can have two decisions and say, I just can't know. But go ahead and pick one now, and God will reroute you as needed. So he's done that to me plenty of times. Where I've prayed, 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 picked the wrong thing. And they're like, he shuts the door as soon as I pick it. So that's, I was just making sure you had the right heart, not the right choice. That's where he's already looking for. But our job, as we come to a close here, we're not waiting on Pentecost. Uh, They are. But we still have a job to do, and that's to pray and to pray and to seek the Lord and his will. And I wanted to put these three verses up as we come to a close before we take the uh, communion elements to close this service. Uh, We are waiting on the Lord. And I find these three passages to be very, very um, informative, and directive, but also encouraging. Men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Maybe you're praying about something in this room and you've been losing heart. Jesus is telling you, stop losing heart, but don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Be anxious for nothing. Everyone gets anxious about things or nervous about things or depressed about things, but he says, and everything, prayer, and there's that word again, supplication, earnest pleading. Say, Lord, I need your help. That's really what you're praying for. Lord, I need your help. And do it with thanksgiving. Say, Lord, I thank you that you will help me. Let your request be made known because we see in the last verse, we know that God has certainly heard us. Do you believe God hears your prayers? We pray. If you don't believe God hears, you don't need to pray. But if you believe he hears you, you want to pray. Amen? If you believe he's really hearing you, if you believe he really cares, you'll pray. And the early church believed all those things. Let's close in prayer as Jackson comes up. Lord, we just thank you again for this time where you remind us to pray, where you teach us to pray, where, Lord, we would desire to grow in prayer. And, Lord, as we now enter into the taking of the Lord's Supper, Lord, where you gather the disciples and you prayed there in the upper room with them, we pray, Lord, that you would just uh, have us search our hearts. If there's anything we need to confess, we would do that. If there was anything, Lord, that is hindering us, a sin or a weight, that we lay it aside. And, Lord, that uh, we would just be cleansed by your goodness and your grace. And we thank you that you hear us. Lord, help us not to lose heart while we pray, but, Lord, to draw nearer in faith and to grow in faith. For, Lord, as you teach us to pray, you also increase our faith. And we know, Lord, that uh, what you did for the apostles, you want to do for us as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you don't have the elements, raise your hand, and the, the, the men can get you the elements. If you don't have them, raise your hand, and you uh, want to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. Jackson's just going to play quietly, but just search your heart. You don't want to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. The Scripture says to make sure that it's a very serious thing. We don't just take it flippantly. But if you have sins, then confess them. And if you don't know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you can pray immediately in your seat. Say, Lord, I want to invite you into my heart, and would you cleanse me and forgive me? And you can be saved today and take these elements, but don't take them in an unworthy manner. Take on a reverent and respectful manner and take just a moment while Jackson's playing softly.